Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome you all uh, to the poet poetry marathon of the exiled writers. As president of the exiled pen, I would like to express our deep gratitude to the American pen for making the evening possible and for their gracious help. I also would like to express my gratitude to all my poets who had traveled long distances to participate in this program. This, the format is the following. I would like to take as little time as possible to take away from the poets. Therefore, my introduction to the evening will be extremely short and the introduction of the poets will be also short. Only a few words to identify the poets and then their work will speak for them. As Solzhenitsyn stated in his first circle, a great writer or poet is so to speak, a second government in his country. And for this reason, no regime has ever loved great writers or poets, only minor ones. And as we know, throughout the ages, many a regime went much further than mere disliking its men of letters. Then the obvious path for the persecuted from Ovid to Dante, to Victor Hugo, Conrad, Miskiewicz, Bunin, Brecht, Eliot, Köstler, Nelly Sachs, Ionescu, Beckett, Canary, and so on, all the way to Czeslav Milos, and everyone participating in this program tonight, led to the not so unique predicament, living and writing in exile. Still, even in this chosen fate, it remains the poet's privilege, to paraphrase Saul Bellow, to help man endure by lifting his heart, by reminding him of the courage and honor and hope and pride and compassion and pity and sacrifice, which have been the curse and glory of his past. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of man. It can be one of the props, the pillars to help him endure and prevail. Thus, the bard emerges as the conscience of his people, his nation, his culture, through his desire to relate the truth. His message is one that transcends all barriers of time, political boundaries, and culture. It has been expressed through the words and words of works of writers, poets, playwrights, in many manifestations, many languages, and many historical contexts. Uniting them all is the unique vantage point on society and politics which is the exclusive privilege of the artist.
Those who participate in our program now, however varied their past, personality, politics, and poetry, will reveal with a strong tenacity of purpose by brandishing their pen, by rendering truth albeit on the periphery, that they all fulfill a noble mission. They persistently continue finding in the universe, in matter and spirit, what is fundamental, enduring, and essential for us all. Um, the first poet, unfortunately, could not be present. He sent, however, his work. His name is Tomasz Otsil, who was born in Budapest, Hungary, which he left in November 1956 after his involvement in the revolution. Since then, he lived in Europe and came to the United States in 1966, where he resides now as a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He has published various books, among them with Tibor Merai, The Revolt of the Mind, The Ice Age, Illuminations, Novels, and is now at work on his new novel, The Hunt. Along with it, he had always been writing poetry. Ladies and gentlemen, I will ask my friend uh, Manuel Duran to do the honor and read a few pieces by Thomas Otzil. I would like to ask the poet to come to the microphone and do their reading there after their introduction. Thank you. poetry is hard. Reading somebody else's poetry is twice as hard. I'll try to do my best. This is from the book Dalmatian Encounters. The title of this poem is Paris Orly Sunday Morning. We mustn't miss the 11.35. Hurry up kids. All aboard please. Please get your tickets ready. Budapest, Saison Hepvar, Shiofok, Nakhainsa. For God's sake, Aunt Mariska, don't let little Stevie. Iowa Falls, Hampton, Mason City, Northwood. Platform number three, platform number seven, gate number twelve. Valencia, El Puch, Sagunto, Castellón de la Plana. So, I'll pay for the excess. Juanita, no es verdad. Anyone traveling in this heat must be nuts. Algiers, Ouzon, Biskra, El Wed. Ce monde est plein de fous. Europe's Grand Central in the middle of July. Arabs, Spaniards, Greeks, Bosnians, Cypriots. The international proletariat is airborne. Regardless of economic substructures, the machinations of OPEC, 
in the midst of capitalism, in the middle of July, in the center of Europe, in the middle of the general and progressive impoverishment of the toiling masses pet project of Uncle Karl. Madame, you want fish for lunch or would you rather? Von der Liebe kann man nicht leben. Oh, Actually, here we need only a small detachment of Japanese guerrillas to color the snapshot of our unforgettable century. Colorfully unforgettable, who en route from Cuba with a few thousand petrodollars in their hidden pockets would toss a couple of hand grenades made in the German Democratic Republic into that transparent bubble of our generally and progressively impoverished humanity on behalf of the wretched of Northern Ireland protesting with our century's inimitable sense of humor against violence and oppression and then vanishing quickly into the nirvana of the revolution on their hastily expropriated and comfortable Boeing 747 so that we can continue our trip temporarily interrupted. Gate number nine, boarding passes please. Zagreb, Rijeka, Krvenica, Selce, Dubrovnik. With that incomparable indifference of our century. Views. Below us, ladies and gentlemen, on your right, if you care to look, the Alps peregrinate, peregrine armies. Where are they headed without the elephants of Hannibal? They have no history, only mountain air, magic mountains without magic. Meine Damen und Herren, Septembrini, Nafta, have both flunked. Hans Kastorp has vanished without a trace in the dust of the plains from above there. Mesdames et Messieurs, you get a fantastic view, free of viewlessness. On the other hand, however, if I may allude to my decade-long experience between heaven and earth, so to speak, before we begin our final approach through reportedly heavy layers of cumulonimbus, perhaps you would find illuminating signore e signore to take a last fleeting glance on your left to that radiant, unperturbable sun above. One is titled Xirvenik, from the wild sweltering summers your memory still lingers, the wind, the sun, the water, the lindens by the seashore, evening, the fish smelling blue ambages in a snapshot, 
Naked all on the seashore, deep in the scorching summer, fifty young bachelors with fifty tremendous members, all laughing, all defiant, all in the roaring sunshine, even before I was born, a memory from childhood, before I die, an ancient memory for my old age, that is what remained from you, what will then remain from me? When nearer now to the old earth, from dust and unto dust, with my daughter, your granddaughter, two memories, two futures, swimming slow in the scorching summer's warm, lazy waters, slowly, slowly becoming memories between two distant presents, two distant pasts where your memory is youth and your youth is memory. Thank you. The next poet is Jozef Bakuts, Hungarian poet and translator, born in Hungary in 1929, uh, has lived in the United States since 1957, published several volumes of poetry, um, and contributes poems, articles, essays to various literary publications, Hungary, France, and the United States. In 1974, he received the Pre-Koshak for poetic achievement. Uh, Mr. Bakuts lives in Boston and works as a mechanical engineer. He uh, is engaged in organizing and completing a series of unpublished volumes of poetry and prose. His life work constitutes approximately 2,000 pages of writings and collages. He's also one of the editorial members of an avant-garde review, Arcanum, which is published in, in the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, we welcome Mr. Bakuts. Sound all right? Does it sound okay? Seashell. Your shadow precipitates in insane figurations. A controlled chemistry. The houses prop you up. What if this paradise caved in on top of you? When the sun comes out, feathers grow on the ass of angels. And when at dawn I went down to the beach, the horse bolted and with a single flap of his wings took off. 
of course, in the terrific lonesomeness then, driven by blind mole instincts, I fled to where among the tables I could equip myself with beer, the sea in one corner of one eye. Thus I waited until sundown, reaping between the pages of a dirty novel, verbs flying right and left up to my ankles in adjectives till the cooler breeze washed the windows down. That was when I took the conch out of my pocket, laid down my watch, measuring its time. <coughs> the frequency of its hum I factored by the geometry of its housing, scribbling all over the tablecloth, plus some napkins. A good thing the publican kept open until dawn, all the while keeping watch over me with a gold tooth. When suddenly the tide reared up its ugly head and washed away the whole thing, kit and cabulo. <coughs> An alphabet. Lily of the key, image of floating town mirrors the mirror's image, a school of colors swims into the black motionless mouth, shirt melting and shoulder, I have no words, no eyes and no room, shut-eyed waters suck down the chair, the table with the large dog legs of loyalty. I do not want a single leaf, a bird. I am the trees, the whale, the tropical mango, image of floating town in purple puddle. Lily of the key, our dictionaries flow down into the sewer. You close your ankles, you calm yourself, your still step rages over the silk. Backward for the boat of Ahab. That night, riders came, mechanics. I know I have seen them, their cross-shaped crafts. They signaled with blue and yellow flares on the bottom, the false bottom of the sky. Space riders in 1919 already, mother deceptive angel of death. Only then they disappeared and did not come back. Freud, Jung, Dada, surrealism. Since then, they are in a holding pattern over St. Tsara's Cathedral, waiting for the appropriate moment. In the catacombs of your unconscious wall paintings, frescoes depict them. They ride on your face, space riders, space guys, and in your dreams, wearing the uniform of the magician Max Ernst's woman of a hundred headlessnesses, they loiter, they march, the founders of the Review Porcupine under the scorching windows of the night shelter of Lenin. Space riders, 
the gallop on the beach under my house, mother on the sand, angel. I see the upturned, uprooted, labyrinth-shaped shells left behind by the hooves of their mounts, angel of death. You cloud over like the windows of a pub just before the storm hits. The neon beer ad blackens. Blue lightning issues from your fingertips like those of, on, of one about to drown. The tussled mane of space thunders on the window pane. The carbonized objects of your elemental virtues are put on exhibit by this tantric museum where I too am represented by two battle cries and three poem weapons of mine which originate from 1925 from before my birth. These inspirations date from the bedwetting period. I am encasing right now my kidney stones in a lucite block. According to the mathematical series of Fibonacci, I will title it Cyclic Downpour. By the way, I am also in the process of founding a periodical upon the dry riverbed of the Limpopo on water-resistant paper, which the next rainy season will swell into a ship, a tipsy ship that flounders across the borders of nations, and in the end will sail on the open sea on tracks of various currents cavalierly into the void, the Seychelles, the gulf, the gullet of Moby Dick over the depths of nothingnesses. capable of dismantling this night. The threads of dreamers have been cut to such a discombobulated tango, the springs sprung so deep and the gear system so mysteriously run in its bed of rubies, now gaining, now losing as it alters the proportionality of its transmissions, advancing, retreating like the tottering mannequins on straight Fifth Avenue like the sand which they poured over our dreams, like the salty smile in the music box of the sea with the pegged cylinders of waves stuck in the same tune. I am incapable of finding the wrench with which one could position the universal knot over the iris of the sleeper, the gaze that always goes out of whack. I have no idea what the frozen port of marble had means to my lover at the end of the street with the boxy little puritanical houses, the wanderings of Orion that remind me of a Horishana butterfly wing, the body broken by my hands of the big game resting on the pristine bed of wilderness, the rising sun disk when it bleeds drunkenly into the Atlantean ocean in the front yard. I can't count the ineffable synaptic connections of nerves on which, as on a musical instrument, vibrates the denial transposed from a whispering voice of evil onto the harmony of the spheres. And in the sexual act, the wintry dead materializing among the ice flows of the Danube, 
these puppets, these poopers, which when you unwind them, the silk of the future is woven somewhere in a hidden weft, nomadic woof. In an unimaginable time, and in the place of the sky of leprosy, a new sensitive skin grows, and behind it, like a huge hand's wanes, a whole swarm of new naked star systems pulsates. I cannot trust myself to the broken ship of language whose hull beckons slowly wrecked on the rocks of the real, and I haven't the foggiest what goes on inside the poems. In other words, how do I go on inside poems as the final truth in the vortex of changes when the simplest things are unnameable. And in the interval of verbalizations so undertaken, the truths of existence asphyxiating. I can't, after all, learn to live with such compressed lungs in the abstract spaces of discredited philosophy, evicted faith, mythless wanderings, so that nevermore shall sacral things, non-expendable love, conversation welling up warmly in the aura of morning coffee, have a system of signs, nor the itinerary of the hand in the wilds of a girl's hair, the blinding white chasm of vision appearing in the spark of a calm, so that the single split acceptable according to the thinkers of the West should exist between man and the world only, so that therefore there should never be again a single luminosity pinned to the edge of vision that could point away. Manuel Duran now will uh, come back and um, read from his work. He was born in Barcelona in 1925. The author of uh, six books of poetry uh, in his native Spanish and has also written and published poetry in Catalan and in English. Uh, he is a professor of Spanish and Portuguese at Yale University, and humbly he mentioned only this, but he's the author of several scholarly and uh, fictitious books as well. Let us welcome Manuel Duran. Okay. I will begin with three Manhattan poems. Every time I come to New York, I find the city very impressive and beautiful, but at the same time, a little too theatrical. It's like a stage set. And this is what I have tried to convey in these poems. The first one, is <coughs> the title is Sunday Afternoon and there is an epigraphy by Walt Whitman, a line from Leaves of Grass that says, I too walked on the streets of Manhattan Island. 
With our hands in our pockets, we will drink large gulps from the vast blue glass of the afternoon and gaze for a moment at the sun's rays gilding the needle of the Empire State Building before the sun sinks down silent and splendid. We'll walk among the dust, among crumpled newspapers, pressed by the wind against shiny store windows, towards a horizon tormented by the wind, unraveled by the howlings of ambulances. Manhattan, a difficult mother, everybody's city and no man's land. Far away in the sky, over Battery Park, over Coney Island, slow, stubborn seagulls go on tracing invisible graffiti. Later, the quicksilver of stars will scatter over the night sky, and on each street, hunching under the weight of their secrets, the last passers-by will step like sleepwalkers towards the subway, will wave to us with a gesture of complicity and will disappear forever. Number two, vertical space. It is like flying. Yes, it's almost like flying. It happens when I follow with my eyes the straight spine of the skyscraper going up and up and up and finally exploding into fragments of blue mist. Number three, going around the corner. Once more, the wind and the rain disorganizing everything, lending a false pink color to the geraniums in the balcony above mine, turning asphalt into a long, dark, smoking mirror. The street goes on for a while and then stops, cut off by the rain, cut off by the mist and the wind. And we understand at last that we are walking along a huge movie set Filming is about to start. Someone yells, lights, action, camera. A muffled music fills the background. And once more, we improvise our lives. Now I have here a very short set of very short poems. Each poem has a title and three lines, that's all. I concentrate on the title until the three lines seem to write themselves. The first one is Snake. Always thinking about curves, about soft, flexible whips, and also about how to avoid knots. 
indolence. The light arrives so slowly that it caresses my body like a huge white sponge. Memory. Sun spots among the branches. Memory appears suddenly and disappears in the green shade. Sea breeze. If I am only dust, shadows and dreams, how can I explain this taste of salt in my veins? Dream. I am at the same time a labyrinth of mirrors and a famished minotaur. Your eyes. If rain is the true color of the sky, your eyes of rain color remember a sky that is deeper and further away. This is a poem I wrote last night after a nightmare. The nightmare was really frightening. I was surrounded by black, huge black birds, and the birds' feathers were all knives and uh, swords. And so this is a very, very brief poem that I wrote during the night, because I always keep pencil and paper. The last questions. If you cut off the string of a kite, where will the kite fly? If you cut off the sound of your voice, when will the echo come back? If you cut off the flow of my life, who will see me vanish? Thank you. Our next is Anna Freulich, who left Poland in 1969. She now lives in New York City and teaches Polish at Columbia University. She is the author of four collections of poems and has contributed poems, essays, and reviews to many emigre magazines and some underground publications in Poland. Let us welcome Ms. Freulich. I'll also start with uh, poems about Manhattan. 
Ergo sumus. Here we are, I from the provinces, and you from the world's capitals. We drink wine in New York, the capital's capital and the province of all provinces. We drink wine as behind the window in the gallery three shagals hang. Here the deposed kings and the empresses without imperium walk their dogs. Here poets in 200 languages write their poems as if furious. Write poems for no one so that the city is filled with poetry like a balloon and just a snap would make it fly. It would fly with our wine and with the restaurant where fish is served with knives. It would fly with beggars sleeping in abandoned shelters and with rats, with the bridge and a view from the bridge, with a stock exchange and with the buildings made of glass. It would fly. But this is only supposition. Although the poets write their poems, there is no daredevil to snap. Translated by myself and Rochelle Diagenes. Another about New York. New York, November, and a rose. We are both liars. And on the fine line between politeness, a lie, and desire, our dance is as a rose that with its root penetrates the frozen soil so it may bloom longer. Yes, God confused our languages because of the tower we raised too high. And I don't know whether I lie when I desire or I desire when I say, God bless you. Our game is like gambling with marked cards we don't know who leads, who will choose defeat. In the city that is the homeland to all lost, we seek twisting roads, roads to each other. And the star does not shine upon us. Among the cryptic scramble, the city opens sesame of darkness for us. One thing is genuine there, one thing untarnished, the pain which as a deaf echo wanders throughout the tunnels. Translated by myself and Marlene Barsou. The castle is not mine, neither is the prince. Though his robe is velvet fine, though he's handsome, though he's rich, the large wood path is not mine, neither is the sound of evening plain. It's not my town from which my train was living long ago in time. Mine is the island cut into squares, the streets a maze, and breeze from bays breaking rivers haze, translated by Jakub Pogoda. On reading Gibbon, Rome was falling, Rome the Magnificent, the troops still marching on the roads, the, vine, the, vine, right, the vineyards soaking in bright sun, and statuary marble white piling up dust.
Lasting through the centuries, Rome was falling so that fallen could forever last. And to this day, no one knows why. The Caesar's brother and his son were still busy killing to reach the throne. The gladiators still aiming at the lion, the distinctive Greek style still ringing in the orator's speech, the crowd as always still in the forum. No one sensed that in the mist, the morning mist of the Rhine's forest, Rome was falling. Translated by Robert Maguire and myself. Beautiful is my mother, every spring more stunning, with every hair gone whiter, with deeper wrinkles running, with every step gone harder, with nights still darker coming. Beautiful is my mother, every spring more stunning. Translated by Jakub Pogoda. Alhambra. The savage moor wandered here, where he found water on the hills, and ra red life-giving dust instead of sand under his feet. The water tamed the moor, and beauty induced him to laziness, and he began to raise shrines for water, since water was the most beautiful of wives, translated by Robert Maguire and, the, and myself. Variations on the, on the theme of Drambui. We are having a very nice evening. There is a slight drizzle outside the window. You sit at the table, I sit opposite with a glass of Drambui. We read the poems of Anna the Great, the poems of her Petersburg days, and about poetry we debate as we drink an old drambouille. You light a candle for the mood, a delicate game of light. I look at you through yesterday and through the drambouille. You were a summer storm for me, the light seen through the mist. So I think, for no reason, as I drink your drum buoy. Translated by Robert Maguire and myself. Thank you. The next poet is Alame Horvat. Uh, another native of Hungary. He has lived in the United States since 1956. Actually, 1962, he left Hungary in 56. He's the author of four volumes of poetry, and I just found out before this evening started that he received the contract from Budapest, where they are going to bring out a collection of his poetry in his native city. Let us welcome Mr. Horvath. 
few of my poems were translated by an American poet, Nick uh, Columbine, whom I believe uh, being present, I'm not sure if he made it. And I will read from uh, his uh, translations, a few of them uh, with his permission. They were published, uh, scattered in uh, American uh, magazines and also in book form. Execution. Look, I take every revolution to heart since the time I lost mine. I was young. Maybe this is how I preserve youth. I audacious hope that things will be altered. But now it's too late. Your single gray hair is more momentous to me than the martyrs of all movements. Yesterday, on June 19, 1983, the Iranian revolutionaries executed three young girls. They were precisely the same age as you when you first kissed me. chest with painted tulips. The soldiers burn down the village and they say, this is victory. Those who try to argue with them are immediately shoved against the wall. Everybody quiets down because they see there is no wall. The child would love He notices, awestruck, that all the houses have doors. On the threshold, the doors turn on their heels. They may not want to argue with him. The family is in the middle of the room, painting tulips on a chest. A soldier stands at the wall and fixes them with his gun. The child would love to put a match to all this, but he's already old. He lacks the strength. It's tangled but accurate. Titmice eat on the snow-covered terrace. The cactuses flower in my dining room. I thrive according to a different timetable between Grieg and Bartok. An earthquake crumbled on the radio last night. The Persian foreign minister landed in America pondering the issue of oil refineries. The Pope knocked on a nursery door. I have noticed I live on the periphery of public life. I only mingle if a snowstorm forces me to wield a shovel. It must have been ages since I made love to the one I cherish. In the evening I read Durkheim, Suicide 
as a public act. Winter will be lengthy, according to several appraisals. The birds feel grandly at home on my terrace. I write poems with urgency and speed, like when Ting Yuan at the end of the dynasty. The Bird Feeder. I painted the bird feeder for the Scottish woman who made my breakfast. She has been living grandly with me for 20 years. I just gave the lawn a crew cut behind the house. By evening, it will transform into fragrant hay. At times, when I stretch out on the ground, the dog licks my face. His tongue is scratchy like mine when I write poems. We have no further fraternal concerns. The dog runs off into the woods. The woman sings on the terrace. I remember the Prime Minister whom they hung by the neck because he couldn't control me. And a last one titled, The Final Word. The final word belongs to the editor. He has a Secretary of Culture. The Secretary has a Prime Minister. The Prime Minister has a government. The government has the police. The police has guns. I have a poem. The poem is a tyrant. It refuses to compromise. In the words strictest sense, it's the final word. The snow is blue like an orange. Our next participant is Algirdas Landsbergis, who was born and grew up in Lithuania, which she left at the age of 20. He has published plays, stories, and a novel. His plays have been translated into several languages and were performed off-Broadway in, off in Canada and Australia. He writes both in English and Lithuanian. At present, he is a professor of history at uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. In addition to all this versatile literary activity, I know that in secret he's a poet too. Let us welcome Mr. Lundsbergis. Actually, uh, according to Penn rules, uh, poets uh, are not allowed to monopolize the recitals, <laughs> so I'm the token dramatist in this conjury of, uh, of poets. I'm the white crow, the black swan, or whatever similes we can find. Now, I'm going to read a short excerpt from my newest play, 
titled The Idiot's Tale, uh, a very, very free adaptation of uh, Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot. One of the main characters in that novel, as you all remember, right, uh, is uh, Nastasia Filipovna, a woman of an extraordinary beauty uh, who drives men and women mad, uh, a woman at war with herself. Now, Dostoevsky merely hints at the cause of all that. Uh, her benefactor, her uh, would-be father, someone who adopted her, uh, also violated her. So there's a hint of incest. Now, uh, this hint I change into a scene uh, that I'm going to read. Now, before our scene begins, Prince Mishkin, the holy fool, and uh, Rogozhin, his uh, future antagonist, are in a train compartment. They're on the way from Warsaw to Petersburg. They become acquainted, and Rogozhin shows Mishkin Nastasia Filipovna's photographs, uh, photograph. And uh, Rogozhin speaks, at this very moment, while I'm speeding towards my inheritance, my father's cool million waiting for me in Petersburg, she's probably sitting in her own box at a grand or the French theater, a goddess, untouchable. And as they speak in that train compartment, Nastasia Filipovna appears inside a picture frame on the right. She's wearing a ball gown, her shoulders are bare. Dark hair frames her pale, beautiful face. An opera soprano's high note is heard in the background and slowly dies away. It's the famous Nastasia Filipovna. That's all the officers can say. And Rogozhin confines to Mishkin that in Petersburg he's going to conquer Nastasia Filipovna's heart. You'll see me and her rise above Petersburg and float free of everything. So this leads us to our scene where Nastasia Filipovna is only 12 years old. The soprano voice abruptly turns into a dying woman's shriek. In her loge, Nastasia Filipovna's arm drops as the corpses in the first scene. Rogozhin and Mishkin remain immobile in the darkening compartment, a moment of darkness and silence. The first bars of a gentle tune are heard as a faint spot of light touches the empty picture frame stage right. The empty picture frame begins to move back and forth slightly like a swing. When the swing is bathed in full light, Nastasia Filipovna bursts in, excited, accompanied by a surge of music. She's 12, she's wearing a girlish summer dress with a white sash and wide-brimmed hat. In her arms, she carries four dolls, which she arranges in front of the swing as her audience. Nastasia sits on the swing and rocks gently as she speaks. Ready for some exciting news? We're moving. Don't worry. 
I'll take you all with me. You like it there. The place is called the Pleasure Garden, and it has trees, flowers, musical instruments, and a thousand and one books. A young lady's library, he said. Promise not to breathe a word to anybody? I overheard Afanasy Ivanovich, that's her benefactor, her would-be father, talking to my governess about me. My heart was beating so fast, I thought it would fly away and land on his hand. She's so playful, he said, sweet, intelligent, and beautiful. And all that at the age of 12. Later he spoke to me. I had a, such a hard time keeping a straight face. He told me that in the new place I would get a special education in a few years I would blossom forth like the most beautiful flower. He used the word beautiful twice. She gets up from the swing and begins to wind flowers around its sides. If only you could hear the way he speaks French. And now Afanasy Ivanovich Totsky appears in the frame stage left and begins to preen before an invisible mirror. He's 45, impeccably dressed. And Nastasia continues. I'll study French day and night so that we can have endless conversations in French. Au clair de la lune. That means in the light of the moon. There'll be no giggling from you. I know what you are thinking. Silly old dolls. He's the kindest, the noblest man in the whole world. Who took care of me when my father died? And we are not even related. And now he's going to educate me. Why, oh why does this time pass so slowly? I want to rush into the future like the fastest train to close my eyes and wake up at 16. She tosses her hat away, pushes the dolls to the, dolls to the side, and gets back on the swing. She's 16 now. Totsky comes from behind and stops the swing by putting his hands on her shoulders. She smiles knowingly but pretends not to know who it is. Who has stopped my swing? The password, sir? Au clair de la lune. Ah, pour l'amour du Dieu. <coughs> Ouvre ta porte, pour le Dieu d'amour. She pronounces her French with a girlish longing while he mouths each word like a French kiss. Isn't French the most sensuous language? Let us speak nothing but French. The author of Claire de la Lune was Fabre d'Eglantine. Take his French name between your lips and feel it. I hoped you'd come. It is your 16th birthday. Look at your dolls, how far away they are. In another century, you're a woman at long last. Nastasia, timidly touching his hand on her shoulder. This is paradise, and I'm in it. Almost paradise. Only when you are here, will you come often? Each summer, all paradisial summer long. Oh, you've been more than a father to me. More, yes, I should hope so, much more, altogether more. Puts his hand to her heart. Your heart is impatient, cups her breast, 
What are you doing? You do trust me, don't you? Yes. It's such a sultry day. Will you let me take you inside? Yes. Let your more than father put you on a cool sheet? Will you sing me a lullaby? Yes, Papa more than Papa will. Yes, he will. Oh, yes. As if hypnotized, Nastasia walks to the edge of the bed under Rogozhin's and Mishkin's compartment and sits down. Totsky picks up one of the dolls and begins to caress it. Nastasia re responds to each caress, trembling violently. <coughs> he starts staring off the doll's dress. Nastasia begins to undress, responding to each of his motions. Totsky seizes the naked doll with his left hand. Nastasia lies down on the bed. With his right hand, Totsky starts staring the flowers from the swing slowly and then more and more rapidly. The last flower is off the swing. Totsky stands, panting. Nastasia's arm falls down the bedside, paralleling the position of the corpse in her first scene. Totsky puts the naked doll on the seat of the swing and kneels next to it. No tears, please. Did you say hurt? Only the first time. Father will be back. Huh? There's no wound. Elementary anatomy. Papa will be back. Do your eyes accuse? I'm a sensualist. I can't help it. Since God knows French, he'll understand and pardon me. Lover will be back. You are so beautiful. The paradise is complete. Luxury you shall have. Luxe et volupté. You'll get into a habit of luxury, and touch by touch, luxury will slide into necessity. He walks to Nastasia, helps her into her ball gown, whispers, luxe, calm, volupté. Now darkness falls, and in the darkness we hear Mishkin scream out, no, she won't. Now light returns to the train compartment. Rogozhin wakes up. Ah, oh, Prince, it's you. We've both dozed off. I dreamt of hell. Is this the meaning of the original sin? Rogozhin, did you say hell? It wasn't a dream. Welcome to Petersburg. Mishkin, we shall meet, Parfion. Rogozhin, don't forget. Russia is a beastly place for an innocent, especially if he's dressed like a Swiss clock and believes in the original sin. Rogozhin embraces him and departs. Mishkin stands undecided. I would like to apologize for an error made in the program. Our next poet is Chandor Andras. And since both names are in Hungarian first names, we somehow use it alternately. And uh, while we are appearing alphabetically, my poor friend, 
was categorized into the S group, whereas he should have been the first. But we still welcome Sándor uh, András, uh, the son of Budapest, professor of German literature at Howard University. His uh, books of poetry, Rohanó uh, Oasis, Mondolatok, um, appeared in anthologies as well. Uh, there are various titles which I will save uh, you from listening to several. Uh, he has also published short fiction, essays, and literary studies, and he's also on the editorial board of the avant-garde magazine Arcanum, together with Mr. Bakuts. Let us welcome Sándor András, András Sándor. story. After he had set the town hall on fire, he went back home for a cup of tea. Losing his thoughts in a spoonful of rum, rum is a nice game, he mused, and then poured it out, thinking it looked like Listerine. Why should the town have a hall? It's not even human. He was humming a tune. By the time the water was boiling, it was pouring in the streets. And being well-versed well in the ways of the world, he invited the cop off his beat. I won't set him on fire. He's human, after all. And being greatly moved by his own generosity, he tied his dearest parrot into a knot. A sailor's not. One can never be too sure. <laughs> Three seconds. Fate is a leaf on this tree. Transcendence is a flower. But the beginning is nowhere anymore. It is only remembrance in fruits, the remembering of an existence of pre-root, doors tumbling through doors in a row of palace chambers, a metaphysical row of trees standing in garden time, especially Especially belongs to the family of roaches. It cannot be exterminated. It finds its way into every apartment. There is no ceiling 
from which it couldn't drop into your mouth, especially if you look up at the sandals of the dead. They shuffle footless on airy clouds, wearing off nothing except the beams of your eyes, the antique silver lining of imagination, and by the weight of rolling drops of sweat, your smiles dreamily trotting four-horse carriage. <coughs> Growing pains. I constantly outgrow the world. It wasn't made to my measure. It doesn't fit me. The Himalayas stare on my shoulders. Blameless mortality slits open on my ass. Five continents patched up wisdom rents under my armpit. And the excuse me bursts on me everywhere, as does the I confess and the I don't give a shit. This is how it was even before the old days, before the egging womb and the seminal sperm. Yes, even prior to the light and other darkness, this rent on the skin between the lips, on this threadbare and yet disastrous straitjacket, wood straitjacket, it non-stop tears and non-stop in vain in the expert hands of the eons, collapsing voice and vision <coughs> in the ecstasy of a tremendous wound. I envy the Archaeopteryx for its open sesame door in the limestone. The jilt pigeons not yet cast by the genetic dice. The king kingdom of heaven in the souls of counter-indicated catatonics. And I envy, of course, the eternally Edenic snake, its new skin neatly fixed in place, even before it could slip out of the old one. It just lies around with a mild disposition, like menstruating women sick with health. Whereas on me, the skin just keeps staring. And even the tears grow. If not the Himalayas, the Milky Way's slit open. If not, wisdom is undone. Ecstasy is. No success in being inside. No success in being outside. Nothing helps to kick myself out. And whenever it seems I will have outgrown it, I know. The revolver barks its little laughter, and the world moves beyond, leaving behind the rag, as it so often happened, on the magic terrain of ties. There is no way to go out of it. There is no way to go into it. Growing up is a scream. Setting down, settling down is a letdown. I let down my hair and run for it. Me, man, man unkind. How about being just and kind? Why not accept the accident? I can never outgrow it. It's got to be worn even if tailored wrong. Moreover, it is only tailored wrong, and I may get try to head it right, tearing at it only as to the tear. And all my protesting is just a protesting, for I live in what I tear. I live in what I care. Sorry. I live in what I rent. I live in what I rent. <laughs>
the next poem has the title of the name of the Prime Minister of Hungary uh, during the revolution of 1956, who was executed um, just about 30 years ago. Imre Nagy. His last wish before hanging to keep his glasses on. When his body shivered and broke forward into death, the Nimmo metal frame glasses fall to the concrete and crack. If you want to see, pick them up, put them on, and look into the cracked world. has no title. Uh, there is no second coming, just this inexorable show. Even the stage decorations evaporate, dreams going blank, and the screens are unplugged. Dreams do not hurt if they vanish together with the dreamer. The body falls through its own shadow and takes it in its wake. Lake on the shore. Mahabharatas to the nth power break into tears. They titter too and plunge into the lake, romping a gaggle on its reflecting surface in the white resplendence of the duckety duck hood. Mahabharatas almost got spills, gospels, and if gospels, maybe even good spells. A smile is sparkling on Chuang Tzu's moustache while watching with sad eyes their ecstatic play. Both Angelinos stand around in their lack of angelhood on the shore, patiently waiting for divine enlightenment to balance off the price of the airfare. And imagination plays with them on a Beyond the whiteness of the plumes, invisible secrets loom up. The six infinities do pyramid gymnastics. On the meadow, beyond the orange palaces of the beaks, each head is a crystal of 124 planes. A flame is singing the void in its center with its music opening upon the inside, protected by the silence of 124 crystal pool gates. Nothing resonates in the center of the void. A melody full of world settles beyond it into mountains and ceases as it ceases the last sound without end. No memory preserves it. Sad mist hovers in Chuang Tzu's mustache. His eyes are laughing with the Mahaprasa's gaggle a single lonesome plume floats on the water. Los Angelinos don't see it. Uh, grape. In this galaxy, which I'm putting in my mouth now, which is called a grape by ignorance, atomic war 
breaks on a larger planet the mountains and the marrow in the bones. My jaw swings. Everywhere put taste in my mouth. And bygone summers memory adrift. Okay, Nemo. Captain Nemo is about to go shopping. He picks up his favorite basket with a few thousand years of gourmandise behind him. I'd like to have a pound from the Venus of Milo, a pint of Mozart, and a dozen medium-sized Acropolis are fresh, I hope, he says, a little worried. And the shopkeeper looks aside. He furtively touches some Yoruba masks picks a grape of ancient Chinese jade and ends up by buying two Papua-prepared and mother-of-pearl-inlaid human skulls. According to the program, uh, Otonar Slavov, uh, the noted Bulgarian poet and novelist, was supposed to read, and was supposed to read until I arrived, and even now, but I don't see him, and I have not received a word from him, uh, from Washington. Are you here, Otonas? I don't think he is. Therefore, I apologize and move on to our next poet, whose name is uh, known by many present here, Tomas Venslova, uh, who was born in Lithuania, son of a prominent leftist writer. He received his diploma in philology from Vilnius University. And uh, taught literature and semiotics there, while published several papers on literary and cultural topics. But primarily, he uh, made his living as a translator into Lithuanian already as a young man, he uh, wrote into the Lithuanian languages the works of uh, Russian authors, among them Akhmatova, Pasternak, Wenderstam, uh, and a very appreciated translator of T.S. Eliot, Alfred Jerry, and many others. He also authored at that time a book of poetry in Lithuania. Uh, as many of you know, he was uh, the earliest founding member of the Lithuanian Helsinki group, organized by the since legendary Orlov and Ginsberg and Sharansky in 76. In 77, he was compelled to leave the Soviet Union. He accepted the invitation of University of California 
and went to Berkeley. While he was teaching there, he was stripped of his Soviet citizenship and uh, continued teaching at UCLA. And since September 1980, at Yale University, Russian literature and Lithuanian language. Uh, he has published three books of poetry since then and three books of essays and quite a few papers. He is a regular contributor to several uh, scholarly periodicals and poetry magazines among them, Poetry, the Chicago-based one, Encounter, World Literature Today, New Leader, and many others, and several of you have probably read recently his very brilliant articles in the New York Times Book Review and in the New Republic. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, let us welcome Thomas Wenzlova. Um, ladies and gentlemen, just several words of comment. Mm, three, three poems of mine will be read, uh, will be read by uh, translators. Uh, Mr. Algeda Slansberg, whom you ha had, uh, have already heard, and Miss Diana Seneschal. Um, the first one poem uh, is on Hungarian topic. Uh, just because uh, there are so many Hungarians here, uh, I am uh, yes, I am rather happy and um, rather afraid to, to to present it. Um, the comment goes this way: I visited Budapest. Uh, approximately two years ago. Um, there is a monument in Budapest for a Polish insurrectionist, Bem, where uh, he, um, he was active in uh, Hungarian insurrection in uh, 1848. And then uh, 108 years afterwards, the Hungarian Revolution of 56 started at, at this very monument. Um, one of the goals of my life, uh, in a sense, the most important goal of my life for many, many years was to visit this monument and uh, to put flowers before it. Uh, and I managed to do it. Um, of course, I was scared to death to go to Hungary. It was um, before the Glasnost period. And even uh, during the Glasnost period, uh, during the Glasnost period, one never knows. But nevertheless, I came. I spent in Budapest two days during the November uh, anniversary, uh, when, when all the offices are closed, uh, thank God. This, is, this will be the first poem. And do, uh, I generally write in strict metrical patterns and, and rhyme, but this one poem was written in Verlibre. Uh, the, the next two poems, which will be read by Miss um, Diana Seneschal, um, are uh, on, well, rather on Lithuanian topics. The first one among them is uh, sort of uh, parting with my, my, my native city, Vilnius, which is presented as being on the seashore, which is uh, not true. Uh, but just because of the Horace, um, the Horatian metaphor on of city as a ship, 
Um, so the third poem probably does, does not need any explanation. Thank you. Instruction. The flight lasts less than an hour. The border guard gives you no trouble. He scans your passport, the only card in the unending game, and waves you on. The risk, of course, is always there. So much can change in a year's time, or months, or in a minute. Red brick haunts from Meierling's era, a holiday, portraits in windows not seen for a good decade, flags, slogans. It is the best time in these lands. The rulers relaxing outside the city, the archives locked, the sentinel surrendering to sloth. In prisons, two, three guards remain, those much in love with their job. On such a day, a pilot flies, untouched, across a land that's richer in uranium and steel than grain. On such a day, he lands in a city where you won't return. Of course, he's bolder. November, gloomy avenues, someone must be hiding behind each arch as in a dream. All this is like a dream. A hill in mist, but you don't have to climb that hill. It is, I think, the only hill. Plains expand to the Dnieper, then to the Urals, and to Gobi. A right turn past the bridge, past the splendor of blind glass, extinguished lanterns, Art Nouveau fences, ancient mosques. Hardly a passerby. You stay invisible to them. Light rain keeps falling. A valley, vast like the bottom of a lagoon. Stone snails above the doors, octopuses and sea lilies in cornices. Even the river, gray as a mollusk, fresh from its shell. It isn't over. It will never end. A woman with a peasant's face sells flowers. A carnation will suffice. You're almost there. The monument is usually guarded by those who confiscate each flower. <clears throat> but it's a holiday. They too have a right to rest. It was exactly 30 years ago that people assembled in the square. 1,000 Two, not enough room for five. Some with carnations, some without. What happened then is told in many books. To read such books, you had to leave your homeland. A cracked stone here or there, hole-ridden blocks of granite, a building, cornerless. But after all those years, it's tough to grasp it all without a guide. As for the man standing in that square, you don't know much. 
his arms crossed above his cuirass. The walls of Jericho shall fall. Away, away. Perhaps the best verse in the world. Freemason, artilleryman, lame, cinch face, Labiao, Ostrolenka, Vola, Temeslar. Lost battles much more numerous than victories. Died in Aleppo of yellow fever, a fresh convert to Islam. Not a single passerby. Put your carnation at his feet to make the world collapse like a star defeated by its own gravity. The continent implodes into the valley, the valley into city mist, the city mist into the square, the square into the monument, the carnation at the center of it all. Heavy, nothing but neutrons. When you pass by again in a couple of hours, it will still lie on the stone, or at least it will seem so. A meaningless gesture. You waited for it 30 years, you change your country, fate, friends, and yet you got what you were after. The people who assembled in that square, not all came back, had waited a whole century, more, 108 years. There's nothing one can do. These planes, steps, mist, they teach you how to wait. to a city. Although I won't be able to lose you, yet I will. I'll put out like a taper the tower and the bell, the stony streets, the shore bespecked with tar, and even my soul, though I'm not sure the soul continues living. Here, underneath the feet, the shaky roadway crumbles, the shooting range unlit conceals a dark-voiced rumble of waves, a vast expanse, and from the days of Noah, above the depths, the dance of Aqualon and Notus. Above the salt abyss, above death crystalline, sail fires of loneliness. There empty trolleys stream around the theater's corner. The crowds of bridges swim, and a lifeless pine-filled forest moves stepwise in a dream. I cannot see Orion, but the spume of billows glows. The now unbarred horizon passes through peaceful clouds. The wet tree seems a nerve beside the wretched granite, and Aquilon and Eurus revolve the sky around it. Will you disappear or wallow in my eyelids' hither side? Having closed my eyes, I follow the final splash of light. Eternity will flood us, but under my hands still stall the patience of your gardens, the weight of your stone walls. Not fortresses nor laurels adorn the trampled wild, the grass that rendered porous the tense magnetic field, the void in drops decaying, soaking the head in chill, and Boreas, frenzied, flaying beyond the nameless hill. 
The clear gust of the ether finds echoes in the grasses. Will you rule or will you wither in memory's dark recesses? It seems that ruin prevails, and guilty to the brim, the greedy mouth assails your remnant oxygen. Time inundates the road, the cliffs approach in haste. May Aeolus, if God is absent, keep you safe. A cluster of moraines defines the hitherto unmelted glacier around the railroad track which winds and drones just like a double river plunged underground. The banks impend on high, the resonance they quell, and suburbs from around the bend loom white through vo voiceless dark and chill. Places of hiding, squalor's refuge, wire thicket, extinguished garden plot, all of a sudden, springtime's pressure engulfs the senses, and I've thought the street seems not to recognize itself, now fenced off from the park, the boundary where youth expires, the space where solitude embarks. Some wagons can be noticed riding through coal and asphalt's land of waste, and fates no longer coinciding cross each other in the past. The guard of heaven waits. shakes sinlessly before us as Bach and Mozart would have wanted. They had conspired to call us into a strange death. What remains today of music of our common city? Less than nothing, I would say. No emptiness, no vault, pitch black, which like the sea would sink the souls, but scattered pebbles, poster scraps, and blots of paint upon brick walls. Charon receives the obolus, Slowly the escalator drifts, boat-like, not into Cositus, but into Lethe, along the cliff. The night ignites its final torch. Having encroached upon our dreaming, a lifeless ray of light bursts forth on the other side of time and being. Ladies and gentlemen, another Lithuanian is supposed to talk now, and we are equal in number from Lithuania and Hungary, but they seem to dominate, for which we apologize. Uh, however, I don't see Mr. Zdanis here. Are you here, Jonas? This is most extraordinary and extremely embarrassing, but I have not heard from him either. Fine. Uh, I saw one of our missing poets today in Manhattan, of which so many poets sang, Atanas Slavo, and he mysteriously disappeared. So in his honor and in, his, uh, in uh, the spirit of his resurrection, uh, a very brief poem to remember Atanaslavo. Spring promenade, blue skies and white winds, a perfect day to be gunned down. In my buttonhole, a red carnation, aim straight. Don't waste my time. <laughs> uh, the missing authors. Um, 
make it a little bit unfair for the present ones because I very seriously and severely um, limited everybody to a certain length of time. And had I known that these two poets had abandoned us or got lost in Manhattan, for heaven's sake, I don't know, um, I could have given more time to the ones present. Now, since many of you would like to talk to the poets, perhaps we shall not call them back to the microphone. But afterwards, during the reception, you may like to talk to them. Before we close, I would like to say only a few words about those poets who cannot read their works. We, no matter how we look at it, exiles, we are the so-called ethnic poets here. But there are thousands and thousands of ethnic poets around the world who can never read from their poetry in the given country where they live. The apropos for this closing statement came from a friend of mine who reminded me of the hundreds of Hungarians in Transylvania who not only cannot read their poetry to an audience, but they have to hide the fact that they are poets. Moreover, they have to hide the fact that they still remember their native tongue. And that there are many like that, the situation similar around the world. In our midst, perhaps, for a second, we just pay tribute to those and hope that they would not be silenced too long. Once more, I would like to express my deep appreciation to you all. You were a wonderful audience, and of course, the poets and the playwrights and all the translators and readers were wonderful, and I thank you all.